Hello everybody. This is Outrageously Me, a podcast for outcast and a note to self. This is all of me your host Sri and today I have a special treat for you. I have my friend Clyde Padalka here who's going to talk about a lot of things which you all going to relate to. Let me introduce my guest today. Professionally, Claire is a chief of staff at TXI, a product innovation consultancy. Personally, she is a mom, wife, daughter, friend, writer, cook, and the list goes on. <laughs> and a proud Chicagoan, she is good at saying no and is learning to say please help. And other than this, I have to say I really love talking to Claire. Uh, she is one of the person who helped me out when I became a father. She taught me some of the tips that I can use um, with my husband as well as my kid, and we're going to chat all about it today. Hi, Claire. How are you doing today? I'm great, Sri. It's great to be with you today. It's great. I mean, it's it, it feels like this is bound to happen, and we've been chatting so well with each other. And I think um, this is the right time we put that into some sort of a. journaling situation where people can learn from it and i've been getting a lot of value from you so thank you so much oh, thank you that's really kind okay let's start with say no because i'm really really excited about talking that <laughs> because in uh, in it, this is one of the things that i also struggle with saying no to people i'm a people pleaser um, you know some of the side effects of what i've gone through um but i understand now that saying no can be an ultimate self care So can you please talk to us about wh- why you landed up in saying no first of all in your professional role and how does it even help you with your personal uh, you know uh, role that you play within your family and friends circle Yeah uh, I love the word no there are a few words in the English language that I am completely obsessed with and no is one of them I think no is a beautiful word an underrated word um personally and and professionally I guess I am I'm a project manager at heart, right? Like this is how I came up professionally and you have to say no a lot as a project manager because your job is prioritization, right? Which means you have to say no to lots of things so that you can say yes to the right things and really commit to that yes, right? And it's easy to say yes. It's exciting to say yes, right? Like you want to take on new opportunities. You want to be enthusiastic. some of us were raised you're talking about people pleasers right some of us were raised as people pleasers so when your boss comes to you with an idea you want to say yes right you want to please them you want to get ahead you're worried that if you say no to last time anybody's going to ever offer you something right and i think that there is a lot of power in saying no because it means you're really clear on what you want you are clear on what you are saying yes to which means you're going to have to say no to a lot of other things um and there's a lot of just a lot of power in the word wow i really love that and i really love the way you flipped it when you're saying no you're actually saying yes to a lot of things that uh, you're mindfully choosing what you're saying yes to so that's the flip side of saying no because often we see no as exactly what you said like if you're people pleasing and if you're if you're in a work environment where you have to work with a lot of people like you're a manager or something it is very difficult to position the no and probably flipping that and saying that um this is a no but i'm saying yes to abcd so that will also help you justify the no but i also hear no is not a word it's a sentence by itself right so mm-hmm. and as he said it's a beautiful word so we're going to talk more about how you come to this position of saying no and being a project manager a writer and a cook and uh, mm-hmm. a daughter and a friend and all of these things so take us back to the root of uh, all roots how does the story of claire begins like where does it start and how does it influence you to be who you are today yeah um i mean it all it all begins you know how i grew up and i was thinking about this question and thinking in some ways the way that i grew up prepared me like perfectly for what i'm doing now and in some ways it makes no sense whatsoever um so <laughs> i grew up uh i grew up in a really wonderful family right i grew up with two amazing parents who they have this incredible ability as parents that i aspire to also and i'll share this with you you can do this with your son to just truly believe in me as a capable person right from a very young age like 
They respected me. They trusted me. They knew I was smart. They loved me and they supported me. And like, whatever it is that you're going to do in this world, you're going to, you're going to figure it out. You're a very capable person and you will figure it out. Even when I was doing things that probably made no sense to them whatsoever, right? As, as a kid, I loved poetry and I wanted to be a poet. That was, that was what I, I truly thought that I was going to do with my life, right? I was going to be a poet. And I wrote poetry all the time and I read poetry and I went to, they, they somehow sent me to like poetry writing workshops over the summer. And like, we were a working class family, right? We did not have a lot of money for this, but they like figured out how to make it work. So they believed in me and they're like, we're going to support you. My parents knew that poet wasn't a real career. They knew that I wouldn't like probably be a poet. That's bonkers, but they trusted that I would figure it out. They were like, this is important to her. She is capable. Um, and she will, whatever, whatever this becomes, like Claire will figure it out. Um, and that's like an incredible foundation to have in life. I hope I can give my kids half of what they gave me in terms of that confidence to just, yeah, you are strong, yeah. you're capable, you'll figure it out. Uh, okay. uh, but coming back to the poetry, I'm so excited about um, your parents letting you do what you wanted to do. And uh, this is something I'm learning as uh, as a parent myself, like, you know, with simple choices with the kids, it's easy. Like uh, the other day I talked about uh, having my kid having to have uh, lipstick on himself and uh, how much it really shook me to the core whether to say yes or no. And then I decided mm -hmm. to say yes because I thought if I were the kid and if I asked my dad about, you know, having to use a lipstick and what answer would I wanted to hear? So that was something that helped me to say yes to my kid. But with poetry, it's a whole new ball game. It's going to be like a like a career, right? And uh, you rightly mentioned that may not be a lucrative career at this point. So where did it start and how did it end with did your parents ever say no to you? Because we are talking about saying no as well. Uh, I mean, certainly they, they said no to me in the way that parents always do, right? They kept me safe as a kid, you know, when I tried to run into the street. <laughs> say no um the the one time that i can truly remember them saying no was i had it in my head and it's funny i'm just remembering this it's not a thing i think about very much but i had it in my head that i wanted to start college early um i was mm. in high school and i was a smart kid got great grades right uh, school has always been like a really easy thing for me and i was growing up in uh, the suburbs of Chicago in a place that I did not feel like I fit in, right? I had like my kind of core group of friends, but we were the weird theater kids, kind of gothy, punky. Like I said, I was a poet, right? Like all of these things. And I did not feel like I fit in with the very upper class, like very preppy world around me. And I wanted more than anything, I wanted to go to New York City and become a writer that was it. Like I was going to move to New York city. I was going to become a writer and I didn't want to wait. I wanted, I was going to graduate high school at 17, but I wanted to go when I was 16. I wanted to go a year early. And I did all this research oh, wow. and I, um, I did all this research and I found schools that would accept, you know, a year early admission. And I'd worked out the credits at my, at my high school so that I could graduate. And I was like trying to make it work. And very wisely, they were like, no, that's like, that is not a good choice for you. you <laughs> You need it. You have another year. You can make it another year. We're going to take another year. That's, and that's how it's going to be. And it was a hundred percent the right choice. Like they, as parents are, were much wiser in terms of how the world worked and, and saw me really clearly knew I needed more time. Because the fact is I did graduate at 17. I did move to New York City to go to NYU and study journalism. And I could not hack it. Like 17 year old me moving from the suburbs of Chicago to living in Greenwich Village at NYU, highly competitive, right? That's, I wasn't in my high school where I was like one of the smartest kids. Now I'm in with all the smart kids and a bunch <laughs> of really rich kids who all have all this, you know, all this uh, privilege that they're coming in with. And I'm just like, trying to keep up in my classes and I'm far away from home for the first time. I didn't realize how lonely I would be without my family, without 
those like core friends that I'd had who honestly to this day are still some of my dearest friends. And I was, you know, working too many hours at a crappy retail job and, you know, all, all of the things that are like the turmoil of being 17 and a freshman in college. And I absolutely couldn't take it. And I, tr- I wound up transferring. I did my first year at NYU and I knew that it was not healthy for me to stay there. I would not have a good life and I would not have a good experience if I stayed there and wound up transferring to Northwestern, which is where I finished my degree. Um, Northwestern is uh, also in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, uh, maybe an hour from where I grew up. Um, But yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't even hack it at 17. So the idea that I would have gone at 16, even younger, even less prepared, um, it is very good that they said no uh, to that, to that idea. When, when I was hearing you talk about from going from suburbs to NYC, I hear the song in the back of my head, like the Glee song. I don't know if you know this song. Just a small town girl. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> in the midnight train. <laughs> um, so uh, that's fantastic. So uh, you being a poet at the age, I think I can definitely see that reflecting in your personality now because you you have the way with words. And every time I speak to you, I was like, oh, she speaks so eloquently. So I think that comes from that place. Now I understand. Do you remember any of the poems you wrote? Do you have anything to share at the moment? I, I don't want to put you on the spotlight, no, but anything do you remember at all? No, not at all. Uh, I, I I don't remember any of them. And frankly, if I did, I wouldn't share it. <laughs> there were some things that belong in the past. And, you know, angst-filled, self-important teenage poetry belongs in the past. Yeah. But who did who did you like as as somebody you want to read to in terms of poems or stories? Because you, you were a theater kid. So who inspired you? Um, it's interesting. It's changed a lot over time. When I was a kid, my favorite poets were the beat poets. Um, so Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and Burroughs and all of these people. And I read a ton of their poetry. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go to New York. New York is like one of the meccas of, of beat poetry. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of like some of these like original rebels kind of a thing was the, the picture I had in my mind at that time. And just absolutely ate up everything that I could read uh, by them about them. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I started to realize, wait a minute, like, where are the women? And there were some women beat poets, right? <laughs> Diane de Prima and, so, and many others um, were there. They were present. Where are the people of color? There are a few mm. black poets that became really well-known, Amiri Baraka and others. But, um, you know, the beats were greatly influenced by people of color. And they were greatly supported by women. But they weren't really front and center. There was a bunch of white guys for the most part, right? And so it wasn't until I got a little bit older and started thinking, okay, so who else is out there who I should be reading? Mm. Um, and mm. I'm very lucky to live in Chicago, and Chicago has a really rich tradition of live poetry, poetry slams, and there are fantastic poets who are coming up today. Um, and as I've kind of returned to poetry, I've started picking up more of these like Chicago poets, people from Chicago, Jose Oliveras and Nate Marshall and Fatima Ashgar and people who are more contemporary, but of many genders and of many races and trying to just broaden my perspective of who I'm reading. Um, because like my experience personally is really limited, right? Like I am a white woman from the Midwest of America and mm. I can learn and understand other people's experiences for me, of course, meeting people and like talking one-on-one, getting to build relationships, but you can build such a broad perspective by reading yeah. people's art, right? And like hearing their voices through poetry, through literature. I so agree. Like, um, you know, this is what I think. Like I used to read Sydney Shelton books. That was one of my first books because my native language is different, obviously. And then when I started uh, reading English books, I started with Hardy Boys. And I was mm-hmm. studying this. I mean, I was reading this in college. Like, you know, I know it's too late, but Friends, Hardy Boys, Sydney Shelton, Paula Coelho, these are the people who helped me with my language skills. And uh, when I started reading Sydney Shelton and I, uh, some of my friends asked, like, you know, 
why, why are you into so much books? Because it's not very common for the community that I was from to read a lot of English books. I said, mm-hmm. if I speak to one person and if I be friends with one person, I can understand how this person thinks and reacts and what are these aspirations, what are the ideologies and things like that. But if I read a book, there are at least three, four characters um, and I can get into the heads of these characters and I can understand how they think and how they react and it helps me uh, to understand people better. It also helps me with my English skills and everything. So I totally get when you said that art can give you that spectrum of um, experience that you can help with diversity and inclusion and all those things. But I'm curious to know, like, um, on the whole, uh, while you went to NYC and we have something to unpack there also, you said you felt like an outsider, like you felt you didn't belong because you're from a small community and a lot of people are smart there and you felt, uh, you know, a bit not uh, home with yourself in that space. So let's talk about that first. And then we can move on to talking about what point did you feel that you have to research for more um, writers, uh, specifically on the writers of color, writers of, you know, uh, different sexual backgrounds and things like that. Sure. Um, so first part first, um, yeah. I, I think going to New York was one of those first experiences of just the broader world, right? New York City is massive and dense, dense in terms of people, dense in terms of um, the pace, the intensity, right? And you just encounter so much stimulation all at once. Um, And I think it was an early experience for me of trying to figure out how, how do you find your place? And at the time, I don't think I had a solid foundation, right? I'd moved places i transitioned in life from living with my family to you know living in a dorm effectively being Mm. on my own yeah i was um studying new things and managing work and schedules and managing money in a different way and there were just so many new things in a Mm. new place that i did not find solid footing and it wasn't until honestly, much, much later in my life that I feel like I did regain that solid footing to where it became easier for me to put myself out there and move in new spaces. You know, the past, I would say, 10 years or so, really being able to see myself as, you know, oh, I can, um, I can exist in, like, in the world of tech, which is something I had not imagined Mm. would be part of my career. And, you know, feeling some of those same feelings of going to New York as a, as a teenager, even as a person in my 30s when I started in tech. I, d- I didn't start a tech career right away. I had, you know, 10 years of, of working experience behind me before I started working in tech and feeling some of that imposter syndrome. Who am I to be in this room? Mm. Who am I to join a startup and try to build a product from mm. the ground up? Who am I to go into this um, high-powered consultancy, right, where these people are clearly incredibly smart and super high caliber. And wait a minute, they want me to join the leadership team? Who am I to step Mm. into that room? You know, those doubts, even from an early age, creep in. um, And that's where I say those early foundations that I had of, you know, my parents instilling in me, you are a capable person that was still in there somewhere, even though I'd spent years being in uncomfortable situations or making the wrong choices in terms of career or relationships or cities to live in or whatever it might be. Um, there was still something in me that was like, no, you're going to do it anyway. You are capable. You can do this. Um, but yeah, certainly those, those early experiences were, um, were challenging. I love that. I love that your parents has instilled that in you. Can you remember any certain experience that really flip the switch in you from going from, oh, I don't belong here to, oh, yes, I'm capable of doing it here, uh, either in New York or in this, uh, you know, being a tech consultancy, being a part of a consultancy, being part of leadership team. Are there any instances where you go from that, no, I can't do this to flipping a switch? And if you so, how do you do that? How do you do that for audience who are listening to us? I don't think you can do it alone is key. Um, the instance that sticks in my mind is when I first joined TXI, which is the company I'm still with now. Mm. Um, 
Now I'm chief of staff, right? I, I sit on the leadership team and I have for many years. But yeah. when I joined, I was, and I, I say this with like, this is not false modesty. I think I was the most junior project manager they ever hired. Right? Mm. They were, mm. I think, taking a, a chance hiring me. And I started, I'd never uh, managed custom software project before. And I'd never been a consultant before. So I did not, I had relevance experience, but not direct experience. And I was working on uh, the product discovery for a brand new startup in the elder care space. And we'd gone through a whole week of discovery. We'd met with the client. We'd understood their needs, their goals. We'd sort of shaped an MVP. And then it was up to me to put together the, the final proposal. Here's what we'll build. Mm. Here's the size of the team. Here's what it'll cost and put it all together and pitch it to the client. And so I did, you know, I pulled together my spreadsheets and here are all the estimates and here's our, you know, team rates and everything. And I pulled it together and I sent it off to the client without asking anyone to look at it first. Mm -hmm. And the client says, yep, looks great. You know, uh, let's, let's go put together official paperwork, SOW. And I start to pull together the SOW and there's kind of a spidey sense tingling for me. like. (laughs) <laughs> we can't really do all this work for this little money, right? <laughs> Come to find out, I had made a mistake in the spreadsheet. Just a simple formula, fat fingers, right? Um, and I, I had screwed up. I made a mistake. And I was terrified, right? This proves it. I shouldn't be here, right? And mm. I stopped. I made a mistake. Oh my, I, I don't belong here. And realized that I couldn't hide this mistake, right? Like if I, if I didn't speak yeah. up, it would only be worse later. Yeah. right? So I yeah. went to uh, sort of the more senior consultant who was on the project, um, this guy, John Gore, who I love to this day and just flat out told him, I was like, John, I messed up. I, please help. Please help. That's one of those words I'm trying to learn still. Right. Um, and he's like, yeah, okay. We're in this together. Let's figure it out. And he, helped me fix the mistake. He coached me on how that conversation should go with the client. He didn't have it, but he coached me on how it should go. He made sure I knew, here's what you do in the future. Here are the templates that you use so you don't fat finger a formula. You always have second eyes on a proposal before it goes out the door. So he gave me the feedback that I needed and he supported me through it. And that was the moment that it turned from a, oh no, I don't belong here Mm. to an, oh yeah. This place has me. I do belong here because we are in it together. And wow. that for me was just the moment where I was like, oh, this is the place for me. Fantastic. I really, really love. I'm having an aha moment here as, uh, you know, Oprah would put it. So the idea of I don't belong here to I belong here and you being a leadership role now, you totally understand how to create that sense of belonging within the uh, workspace where people support each other and also when you make a mistake, like how do you how do you handle it yourself? Like, do you want to hide it? Do you want to say it to people? And do you want to own it? And that transition of owning it and then asking for help, which is something that you are still learning, <laughs> we are going to get there. Um, so I really like that. So I don't belong here. I made a mistake. So therefore, yes, my assumption of I don't belong here comes true. And then how do I navigate this? And then throwing hands up in the air and say that I need help. I need help. And then going from that position to learning and then belonging to the position. Fantastic. I really, really, really love that. And how this experience of, you know, first of all, let's talk about like, how did you say yes to this uh, being part of the uh, tech company? Like you said, you had a career before that. Um, So at what point did you say, Oh, okay. So this might be for me. Let me try it out. I know you did try out the new NYC and all other things. So that gave you the idea of trying new things. But how did you even try to be part of the tech? How did the opportunity came to you? Um, I was bored. <laughs> I was really bored. Um, yeah, I had. Yeah. I'd spent the early part of my career in um, education, for the most part, education publishing, like big textbooks, right? Like the big fat textbooks that we would use in the nineties and two thousands. Right. 
And yeah, I think you were part of Think's Car or something, right? You are the editor, I, right? I was. I, I got there. Um, but before that, I worked for um, a big company called McGraw-Hill. They published tons okay. of textbooks. Um, and I worked for them for, for many years, like seven years. And as happens at big companies, there was a layoff. I got laid off. And I just sort of took the next job that was available to me because I was had rent to pay, right? Like you do. Mm, so mm. I was a project manager at the time. I took a project management job at a, um, a telecom company and big enterprisey, which is what I was used to at the time. Um, and I was very bored. Um, there were many mm. nice things about it. I worked with some great people. I, it was the first time I had exposure to design thinking. First time I uh, participated in ethnographies and user research, um, really mm. introduced to some of the foundations of innovation work that I do now. Those were all great things. But the fact is, it was a very um, hierarchical, bureaucratic mm. company, very slow to mm. move. And I was not in a place where I wanted to just sit in a cubicle wearing uncomfortable clothes from Ann Taylor Loft that I bought on discount. Wow. Um, I did not want to be commuting out to the suburbs every day. <laughs> I, I did not want to spend an entire day formatting PowerPoints. Like I needed something that moved, something that was impactful mm. and meaningful. And just so happened, uh, a friend of mine from from my earlier education days had gotten to know the folks at Think Circa, which you mentioned is a, a literacy ed tech product that they were just developing, and mm. that to me was very that was meaningful that was impactful it was really small it was like five people at the time right they were mm. had just gotten some seed funding like a very very early stage and needed someone to come in and basically wear a lot of hats and manage content and do project management and do some editing and also build culture and operations and hiring and you know all of the things that you do in the very early days of building a company together um and i just i knew that i needed something that I could really sink my teeth into something that I could really make an impact um, on the company and and on the world. And um, that was, that was the turning point for me was, was needing something more. Yeah. I really also um, understand this from your perspective of, you know, learning art and uh, learning to uh, decrypt the art into understanding what I can learn from here, what people's art can give me, and also learning your footing into different environments and being in different places where you can create impact because you are inspired by art. Art by itself creates impact. And th that is what I think has helped you navigate different places and find rootings in places where you can make an impact. Um, one question we actually forgot is that how did you, uh, you know, move from looking at a specific uh, scriptures written by alpha white men, as you would put it. And you also talked about your experience as a white Midwest uh, person growing up and uh, where this turning of wheels happened, where you uh, exposed to different cultures, where you wanted to expose yourself to different cultures, where you understood uh, the idea that everybody exists and we got to find these voices and learn from it. So where did that transformation happen for you? If I'm being honest, embarrassingly late. Um, it is certainly something that I, I think had kind of always been somewhere in the background, right? I was raised in for the time and for the place a pretty progressive home. Um, certainly have always like been around more left leaning people. But when I grew up, what sort of quote unquote progressive people believed is like, you don't see color. And so I grew mm. up with that mentality of just like, well, no, everybody's yeah. equal. We're all one human yeah. race, those kinds of messages, because that was the common thinking among like progressive white people at the time. Yeah. And as I grew up and became more exposed to more different kinds of people, some of that, you know, through college and through living in Chicago, which Chicago is a, a tricky city for race to put it, Bluntly, it's uh, very diverse, but it's very segregated. And so you can live in Chicago and not live around, if you're a white person, you cannot live around hardly any black people, hardly mm. any um, Latina people, hardly any Asian people, depending on where you choose to live, right? And, and where mm. you work and all of these things. And, you know, like many people 
of my demographic, the election of Donald Trump as the president really shook something in wow. me uh, to say, really, that's mm. that's the country. That's that's really it. Mm. And, mm. you know, following on from that, um, you know, certainly the Black Lives Matter movement, the murder of black people by the police becomes more mm. something that I'm conscious of. It wasn't new, but it was something that mm. I became conscious of. It became more present. Um, and <laughs> truly, when Trump was elected and I sort of came to that uh, reckoning of, oh, people who look like me are uh, we can swear on this podcast, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. People like me are fucking up this country, right? We are <laughs> destroying this country. And we have been for, yeah. I don't know, centuries. Like, it was, again, embarrassingly late in the world. Yeah. I was in my 30s. But yeah, that was the reckoning. And since then, I <laughs> it's the littlest thing. But I have not read a book by a straight white man since then. Because I don't, <laughs> I know what they think. I, I read that canon when I was young. <laughs> they have governed every piece of uh, culture and policy that I have grown up in. I, that's what my family is full of. Like, I mean, <laughs> smart and kind and well-intentioned white men, but like, it, there's a lot of them. I get it. I've had enough of that. I can go and <laughs> seek other things. Obviously, I also vote. I also donate to many causes. I also do other things to be like a politically active community member. But that's one of those things that like truly in the past, however many years, that's been seven years. I've not wow. read another book by a straight white man because I, I love that. don't need it. Yeah, I love that. And this happened to you because you saw what's happening around you and you were sensitive to the change that was happening around you. And Black Lives Movement was something that uh, came onto our face, you know, uh, even for a non-white person, um, it it really brought me to the forefront of what we are dealing mm -hmm. with in terms of race and in terms of bias and diversity and everything. So a lot of people find it very hard to reinvent themselves. Like the idea of what is me is actually not static, but it's a dynamic. It keeps on changing. As you said, um, it changes over the period of time. Like your taste in art changes, your interest in what you want to do changes. And together with that, our identity as who we are and how we look at ourselves also changes. So uh, what do you want to tell people? Like, you know, you allowed yourself to change from that. Um, I'm the Midwest white person to, you know, this is all happening around me and I have to change. So there was this switch that flipped for you. Um, but a lot of people get stuck in the idea of identity and that causes them a lot of internal conflicts. And I think that comes out as hatred. So what do you want to uh, tell people in, in terms of viewing ourselves and changing ourselves and reinventing ourselves? It's hard to admit that you're wrong, right? It's hard to admit that you were ignorant, willfully, sometimes ignorant, mm. right? Um, that's not what's prized in this culture, right? For everything that we talk about, you know, in big tech, it's like fail fast, right? And like glorifying uh, failures on the way to success. But that's not tended to mean personal failures. It's like a product mm. failures, right? Oh yeah, we, we launched a feature and it didn't, it didn't hit. Great. Uh, it was just, it was just a prototype. It was just MVP. Like let's move on to the next. Um, mm. There's a different kind of reckoning that you need to do for a personal failure. Um, I don't think I have a, a, a magic secret to it. I don't think that I'm like, I don't think I'm especially good at it, to be honest. I think yeah. there are a lot of times that it's easy to retreat into the fact that I am like a really privileged person. And mm. there are plenty of things that happen in this world that I don't engage with. And I do turn insular sometimes. Um, I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by a community that is very diverse. I've intentionally chosen to live and raise my children in a very diverse community that has a lot of like new arrivals to the United States in it. Um, and we have friends of many different races and just because those are the people who are around us now, right? Because of where we chose yeah. to live, it's much easier um, to, to meet and, and know people like that. And 
uh, same thing with the, the company that I work at. TXI really values mm. diversity and inclusion and belonging, right? And we do work with people of many different backgrounds, many different races, and we have open dialogue around this. Um, we have mm. regular time and investment in uh, DEIB work. And those are the, some of the things that help broaden my perspective when there might be a moment of either moment of stress or a moment of um, fear that makes me turn mm. more insular. Uh, because it's easy yeah. to do as a person of privilege, right? To say, oh, yeah. that's, I can just shut that out, whatever the world mm. event um, might be. But I have people around me who make it more present. Um, and I'm yeah, very grateful absolutely. to have that kind of community. Yeah. Love that. And what I take away from that conversation is that you said it's hard to admit that we are wrong. So I think that really resonated with me, even for a person of color and even not talking about diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, just to admit that we are wrong and moving on from that place where we can unlearn certain things and learn certain things. I think it's a common um, thread that connects us all. And I'm really interested to know about like um, you admitted when you made a mistake and you admitted when you're wrong. And you said several times in this podcast that you failed in some of the uh, initiatives that you have taken to become a poet or something. So how do you look at your imperfections? Like, like I'm going to call it imperfections because I want you to understand what we are aiming at here. But uh, these are something that you may choose not to look as imperfection or something as part of you. But I want to understand, like, in the world's eye, there are certain things that are... Um, maybe labeled as imperfections within yourself from the way that you think about yourselves. How do you handle that? That's a big one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of the direction to go in. You know, I, I think of how important it is to me as a parent and tell me if you relate to this as well is I'm, I mess up as a parent, right? Mm. I, I, I'm a good parent. I love my kids. They're incredible humans. And I still mess up, right? I make the wrong calls or I'm tired and I yell or I'm short with them. And the thing that I have found to be the most valuable, it's taken a lot of therapy to get there, but the oh, thing yeah. that I found to be <laughs> valuable with you and me both, <laughs> every human, any human with a mind and a heart should do therapy. If you take nothing else from this, oh, therapy, it's the best. Um, but, but learning to make the repair right you mm. messed up mm. and there is a school of thought that you could use as a parent and i think it's more old school i don't think this is a present anymore um mm. but where the parent is the authority figure and so mm. you never back down and you never admit you're wrong and you screw up and you just move on and maybe mm. you do it again and you just move on and the thing that i have found to be the most important and this is true in parenthood and in and in work leadership, right? Is own it. Say, yeah, man, I, 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 I was feeling really stressed out. I should not have yelled. That was that was. Mm. I felt frustrated, and so I yelled. But mm. I should not. You didn't deserve mm. that. And next time, I'm going to take a breath first, or next time, I'm going to walk out of the room first, and then and then we'll come back and try again. I'm sorry. Love that. Love and that. That's, you know, that's huge for the relationship, right? It's not about me being the best parent at all possible moments, because frankly, aiming for perfection there is the thing that makes me worse at being a parent, right? The pressure yeah. that you can yeah. put on yourself, right? Um, same thing with being a leader. If you need to be on and perfect at all moments, you you can't. You can't. You will oh, crack. I love that. I love that. Oh my God. I really, really love that. This is a aha moment for me. So learning uh, that I, maybe I would put it this way and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Trying to be perfect is what creates the stress and not being able to do what we are set out to do as a parent, as, as a leader. And learning that we are not so perfect and owning those imperfections and owning that part can help us to be better at what we do. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. I really loved your answer. Yeah, this is this is million dollar right here for people to hear this podcast. And also take therapy. <laughs> but it's interesting because you're still learning to say, please help. And 
you say we have to take therapy. So that might be a situation when you became a mom or became a parent that, you know, your identity is changing and the way you see yourself is changing and this this pressure of trying to be perfect and then, oh, I can't do this. I have to take help. So let's talk about that. How does that impact? Like, when did you go from, oh, I can do this. I'm a perfect parent to I need help. Like, and how can you lean in more towards seeking help? That is an everyday conversation with myself, to be just truly honest. (laughs) Um, This is the number one conversation uh, slash debate that my husband and I have, because I am, I am so, so fortunate to be surrounded by people who want to help, who can help. My husband is Mm. an amazing father. He's an amazing partner. He is smart and capable. And I can say lots of nice things about him. But the fact is, most of the time, I have this tendency to take over. This is kind of the, Mm. the kryptonite side of when I was talking about the way that I was raised, right? And how much it has helped me to be, mm-hmm. uh, to feel capable, to feel smart, to feel supported. Like I can, I can go do that. The shadow side of that, the kryptonite side of that is I can do everything. I got it. Mm. I can handle it. The number of times that my poor husband has had to hear me say like, I got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, but he can also do it. He's very yeah. smart and capable, right? But that's yeah. my instinct, right? Always, I got it. One more thing. I can put it on. I can pull it. I, I can I can juggle all of these balls, right? Yeah. All at the same time. Yeah. And that is just a constant process of, uh, you know, uh, when we were in the depths of the pandemic, it was a really, really hard time. Um, mm. I had taken my first executive role in February of 2020. Uh, great timing. Like no, nothing, timing, nothing was about to happen there. Um, <laughs> I found out in March, like very beginning of March 2020, that I was pregnant with my second kid. Oh, no. And then a week later, lockdown happened. Oh, no. And, and then, you know, then there was about two years that I kind of lost, right? I was waking up in the morning, quote unquote, waking up in the morning. So I wasn't really sleeping very much. Um, what you do when you have like two very young children. Um, yeah. and so going on almost no sleep parenting until the kids left for school, if they had school that day, because probably one of them was sick. Um, and then working back to back nine hours on zoom oh because God. the tech world was exploding, right? more work that we could handle, trying to hire as fast as we could for all the qualified folks we could get, just an absolute scramble of like of good things, but nonetheless yeah. stressful. Until the very end of the day when I would, you know, kids were home and then it was dinner and then it was baths and it was all the things. Well, I was probably on my phone on Slack still, right? Like still yeah. trying to, to do the job. And then I would just like pass out at night. And then of course be woken up many right. times during the night with an infant. And I did that for a year and was just cracking. Like I couldn't, I could not take it anymore. It was damaging my home life and it was damaging my ability to do my work and, and my health. And it just had negative repercussions across the board. And it really took, you know, I, it sounds overly dramatic to say like I hit rock bottom or something like that, but <laughs> it was a very, very hard time. Um, it yeah. was really painful and it took getting to that really painful place to say, something's got to change, right? I cannot function at this level for this long without relief. Mm. Mm. Thank thank you for sharing that. I think it's the most vulnerable time of your life. I can't imagine having to go through pandemic, you know, stuffed inside the home with two kids and work that's transferring everything the way we thought about work and then the Zoom calls. And we didn't have proper desk environments where we can take calls and we were scrambling with a lot of things. So how do you take care of yourself? How do you, how do you self-care? Another work in progress. This is, I'm all work in progress. Like I've figured out so few things. I, I think so. we all are. We all are. We all are working progress. And I think that's the right <laughs> way to look at it. But what, what are the things that you do to take care of yourself? And this is more important for me. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> understand. Well, I'll, I'll share some things that you share some things because I can learn from you. Um, therapy. <laughs> I already talked about therapy. So important. Yeah. Um, I, I did for a time work with an executive coach. 
which was very helpful. She was specifically focused on executive uh, mothers. And so understanding the pressures of home life and being a woman leader and all of that was very helpful to have her support mm. during a, a period of transition for me. Um, I, I read poetry again. I think to come full circle, wow. I had, I had not read poetry for a very long time and I am, it's hard for me to find long chunks of time for self care, right? I've tried different things. I've tried going for runs and, and doing yoga classes. And frankly, those things just take too much time that I can't do them yeah. every day, but I absolutely have time to just read a poem every day. So I keep a book of poetry on my bedside table. I've got one by Nate Marshall there now. And it only takes, it takes a minute. You always have time for a poem. And so to just sit, not look at a screen, right? It's a paper book and sit quietly, nobody else around and just read one poem. Sometimes I read it out loud because the sound wow. of poetry is, is, is just so beautiful and very like, um, refreshing. It's a very different way of speaking and hearing and thinking than I do in any other part of my life. And oh, so I that's kind of that. a new thing. Yeah. Well, buy yourself a book of poetry. Who do you like? Uh, I like Rumi. Rumi is my favorite. Oh, I don't classic. know if you read Rumi. Mm. Yeah, I do have a book of Rumi. I visit this poetry again and again because sometimes you want to look at it and then the same poem, if you read it again, will give you a different meaning mm -hmm. depending on where you are in your mental space. I really love that. Read a poem. There's always time for poem. That's what I take away from this. Mm -hmm. I also do therapy. Um, I have... Uh, I'm fortunate to have a few of my neighbors who also have kids at the same same age. Um, so they are open to having play dates. So when I'm overwhelmed, I text one of them to see if they're available. Just drop my son because, you know, it's just been seven months and he's five year old and we didn't have time to grow up as parents. So it's, uh, it's very difficult. Sometimes it's really, really overwhelming. And also telling my husband, like, I'm, I'm reaching my emotional limit that I, I would be cranky and I don't want to be cranky around him. Yeah. Um, and also telling my son, I would tell my son that, you know, Papa feels cranky right now. Mm -hmm. Papa feels tired from work and everything. Papa needs some me time. So why don't you have a, your time? You can either play with your toys or you can paint or you can even see iPad. And, you know, we have created specific rules around screen time. You know, I know it's some parents really don't want to have screen time, but I think there are a lot of good shows out there. Like Bluey, for example, is a wonderful show. <laughs> um, you can just play it and they learn a lot from it. I love that. So um, I think uh, we are reaching our time for the podcast. I know we have talked a lot of questions, but I also loved the way the communication or the conversation was flowing through between us. And we were trying to learn from each other. And I love that. So one important question I want to finish off with is that what is outrageously me means to you? What is outrageously Claire? So I would never think of myself as outrageous. Um, I think of outrageous and I think of um, like somebody who dresses really flamboyantly or somebody who's very extroverted, loud voice, always in motion, like very kinetic. And Are you describing me? <laughs> Maybe, I maybe. I see those nails. I love them. Um, but you know, for for myself, I I dress in jeans and t shirt pretty much every day. I don't wear makeup. I I am introverted. I can be quite soft spoken in person, um, one on one. I I can do this all day. I, you know, I love talking to you. But if I were to walk into just like a networking event or a party. I would probably just like grab a drink and stand by the wall for a minute and be very awkward. Um, but as I think about it, it is somewhat outrageous. I can, I can claim yes. that word in that yes. when you are a leader, when you're a tech yes. executive, right? These words that are kind of hard for me to claim for myself, executive still feels very awkward to me to claim, but it's very it's accurate. It's, yeah. it's very bossy. I, I use the phrase with a, a friend of mine that I um, often feel like three raccoons in an executive suit. Like we're all just dressed up in a trench coat, <laughs> trying to pretend like, don't let anybody see the raccoons. Um, but, but that is how I am outrageous because I can be, I don't have to be 
that character. Yes. I don't have yes. to be that stereotype. You can be a leader and be soft-spoken. You can be a leader and be a woman. You can be a leader and, you know, sort of feel quiet or plain or, wow. and none of these things stand in the way of you being a leader because this is authentically who I am. I, I can't fake that other thing. It drains me immediately and everyone can tell it was fake, right? Mm. One of my superpowers as a leader is that I can be authentic and just show up as who I am. And hopefully that makes it feel more okay for other folks to show up how they are. And love it. That's, that's my outrageousness. Yeah, that's being outrageously you. I mean, like, even when I asked you to come on board with a podcast without, you know, preparation, and you said no, and that's being outrageously yourself. Mm -hmm. I think you're choosing to say no and choosing to say yes and dictating that from the core of who you are. And, you know, that, that I really love. You are, you are poet in making. You are <laughs> poet in work in progress. You, you, what you do in your work is poem. And I really love all your, uh, LinkedIn post about, you know, how to handle people and how to handle leadership roles and how to communicate better and how to do better in the job. I think you're constantly reinventing yourself and claiming that words that you find it really hard to claim mm -hmm. and self-care and self-love and reading a poem one at a time. Um, I love all of that. And I really understood how one is outrageously clear today. And where it started with all this capability uh, instilled in you by your parents and trying new things and failing at new things and owning that failure and moving on and being sensitive to surroundings and learning from that and moving on and adapting and learning and adapting and learning. I really love the way you shape yourself from your young age to now. And one thing I've taken away from today is that uh, when you are making a mistake, own it and then ask for help uh, that's really really beautiful that's really beautiful that can apply to any situation and also take therapy one and also read one poem at a time i love all of that and listeners uh, this has been a great show and um, join me in thanking claire and if you have come here i'm going to put all the contact information for claire go and bugger go and bugger um, in, in the email and also add her in LinkedIn. She's a fantastic leader to follow. It's all going to be in the description. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this podcast, Claire. Um, I really love what you've shared with us and uh, looking forward to more and more chat in mm -hmm. conversation in person, also in uh, LinkedIn and interacting with your host. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sri. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Um, I always love chatting to you. <laughs>